This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt felt right. And I just thought, well, it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everybody, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about trying to save the world. Have you ever set out a mission to help someone or something, only to realize later that perhaps you didn't understand the complexity of the situation? Growing up, I used to think that suburban living was the environmentally friendly option, because, you know, trees. (laughs) And then I took a class in college called Plant Biology 101, Plants and People. And actually, you can listen to my story about taking this class on our website if you search my name at storyclider.org. But in this class, I learned that suburbia slices up forest into smaller sections, which means the forest has more edge to it. And when the forest has more edge, that means there's more opportunity for it to be permeated by things like wind and pollution and, of course, people which totally changes the conditions. And it also means that animals that tend to roam larger distances are more likely to roam outside the forest and be impacted by people. It totally transformed my understanding of what it means to save the environment. Today, we'll hear stories from two people who set out to save the world and instead came to understand it a bit better. Our first story is from Lindsay Acre. It was recorded in April 2019 at the Beer Baron Tavern in Washington, D.C., The theme that night was hurdles. So on a November day, November 2009, I received a call from my brother. I was standing in my dad's living room and he calls to tell me that a friend of mine had passed away from a drug overdose. So he and I had not been close in many years. Um, probably I'd say at least three or four years at the time that he passed away. He was probably the smartest kid in school. He was absolutely the sweetest person in school. I mean, I I went to middle school and high school with him and it was, it was kind of one of those things that if you, if you had a question about any subject, you, you go ask him. If you needed help with something, you'd go ask him. And he was there for everybody. Because of his passing, I realized at that moment that I wanted to help people. I wanted to help people that suffer from addiction because I thought, you know, is there something that I could have done differently? Could I have been a better friend? Um, Could I have helped him at that point, you know, before then to get into recovery? Um, But I didn't really know how to. But being in pharmacy school, you know, I was in my first year of pharmacy school and I thought, well, maybe I'll learn something here that can help me help other people. Um, so that was my first year of pharmacy school, you know, fast forward three and a half years later, I graduate. Um, I ended up working for the university that I went to school for. Um, 
And because of that, it gives me some flexibility with my job. Well, in 2015, I heard that Charleston was getting ready to have a harm reduction program, which is a syringe exchange program. I'm not sure what they call it here. Um, But I thought, oh, my gosh, finally, because we needed one. It was long overdue. Um, West Virginia has one of the biggest drug problems. Um, We've been number one in overdoses for years because the, the state was completely flooded with pills. So pills came in and then eventually the pills slowed down. So when the pills slowed down, people started kind of going towards heroin, meth, anything they could get their hands on. And so it was a huge problem in our state and we really, really needed something. So I was so excited the program was started and I really wanted to help. So I thought this is my way that I can maybe touch lives of people that, you know, suffer from addiction. So I went to the planning meeting, not knowing what to expect. Um, I thought, you know, I'll probably try to volunteer at least for a couple of weeks and maybe pull my students in, have my students volunteer, thinking I'm only going to be there for a couple of weeks and just kind of getting them into the groove of everything. Little did I know I was going to be there forever. Um, you, you fall in love with patients and you just can't, you know, you can't stop seeing them. Um, but you know, at the planning meeting, I was trying to figure out, you know, how is this logistically going to work? Um, how are patients going to handle being interviewed in the room? You know, is this going to be a rough crowd? I just, I didn't know what to expect, but I wasn't going to let that stop me. I was determined that I was going to do it. So first week, we were all excited, wanting to see if people come, you know. Um, our health officer at the time, he stood waiting in the waiting room like this, dressed in a suit, eager for people to walk in. He was so excited. The first group comes in, led by this young lady. So she comes in with her friends. She takes one look at him, and she's like, nope, and she's out the door. She took off running back to her car. She thought, he's a cop. This is a trap. I'm gone. <laughs> So she runs out to her car, gets in, and our health officer runs after her, knocks on her window, and begs her to come back in. And she did. And because of that day, she continued to come every single week. She brought everybody she knew, so all of her friends, random people that she had just met um, that she knew used heroin or meth or whatever it may be and needed help. She would bring them all to the health department. And the great thing about the harm reduction program is it wasn't just us handing out syringes. Um, We were talking to him about being safe. So how to prevent spread of disease, how to use Narcan to save people's lives. Um, And that gave them a path to actually get into recovery. So everybody that she brought in was able to get that same education, which was awesome. So the program kept growing and growing. And the more that I talked to people, the more I realized how like the, the stigma surrounding addiction really affects people. So the, within the first week or two of the program, I had a woman come in and she sat down in front of me and I just started, you know, chit chatting with her. Um, and she just started crying. And so I gave her her moment, um, just let her kind of get it out. And then I asked her if she was okay. And what she said to me was, You were nice to me. You were the first person that didn't treat me like a dog in years. But that story was not uncommon. So the more I was at harm reduction, the more I heard the same kind of things. When people were new, they would come in and they'd have their hoods up. Their heads would be down. They wouldn't make eye contact. But the more they started coming back, 
the more they would kind of open up to us. So they knew us by name. We really didn't know their names because it was an anonymous program. Sometimes they told us, though. But more importantly, their heads would be held higher. They would have a little bit more self-respect. They would have their hoods down and they would greet us. That allowed us that connection to actually help them, which is what we were there for. So, um, you know, like I said, it kept growing and growing and growing. Um, I really didn't understand everybody's path to addiction. I mean, we have this idea that, you know, everybody starts a certain way, but that's not necessarily true. Um, some people's path is with pills. Some people, they start with heroin or meth or whatever it may be. But one thing I didn't really realize is that oftentimes people are forced, um, at a young age. Uh, and I think the most shocking age that I heard was six. So someone started using at six. And, and again, that has to do with a lot of issues in the family and, and, and being forced. And it's, it's shocking. It's the only word I can think to describe it. Um, and I'd like to tell you about one patient. I, I, I went out to, to get this patient to take her into the room and I had no idea how she was going to affect me. I had no idea what I was in for. Um, but she comes in and she's, she's just hard. She's cold. She's, um, you know, she sits down, she crosses her arms. She won't look at me. She leans back in the chair, just trying to act as tough as she could. And so I just talked to her just like I did everybody else. Um, try to get her to open up. And eventually she did. And then she started to cry. Uh, she told me that she never really opened up to anybody because she didn't trust anybody. So she didn't, she had no one to trust, no one to talk to. So this was really the first time that she opened up. So I sat there and watched her cry and it took everything in me to keep also from crying. So I, you know, I tried to talk to her. We tried to get her help. And eventually, you know, she, she left the room and I left the room. And as soon as I left the room, tears. I just, I couldn't hold them back anymore. So I went to the nurse's station and I stood there and I just cried because I, I, I couldn't figure out how I was going to go to the next patient. Like, how do you move on from that? I mean, it's not, it's not my life, but it's still someone else's. And like, how do you just go to the next person? Like nothing happened. So I stood there and just thought about that. But then I realized that the next person probably has a very, very similar story. And so does the next person. And then I never saw her again. And like I said, everybody's path is different. And then there's this idea. I always hear people say that, you know, addiction is a choice. Um, I disagree, obviously. Um, but some of the stories that I've heard are the reasons that I disagree. So I've had people come in and tell me that they used to find syringes on the side of the road, clean them out in puddle water and use them. Um, one guy had one clean syringe left and he sharpened it on the sidewalk because he didn't want to use a, a shared syringe. Um, you know, mothers don't have custody of their kids, uh, families losing their homes. So all kinds of things that make me think that there's no way this is a choice. Because if it was a choice, they would just stop using, right? So how could it be a choice? It has to be a disease. So harm reduction or needle exchange programs, they're very controversial in my state. 
Um, there was a lot of issues surrounding the program. Um, a lot of people that didn't really understand everything that we did, you know, thought we were enabling. Um, so we heard that quite a lot. There was a lot of things in the news, uh, a lot of bad press, and eventually the program was shut down. But when it shut down, the first thing I thought is what's going to happen to those people? Where are they going to go now? How are they going to get help? Never once did I think, am I on the right side of the fence here? Because there was a lot of things in the news that sounded pretty bad. But not once did I think that. Not once did I wonder if we were saving lives. Not once did I wonder if we were making a difference. Because I knew the answers to those questions. But am I going to hear about that same guy going back and cleaning that syringe out in puddle water? Am I going to see their faces or their names, which I usually for the most part didn't know, but am I going to see them in the obituaries? Is it going to be this week? Is it going to be next week? I don't know. Thank you all for listening. That was Lindsay Acree. Lindsay is an assistant professor at the University of Charleston School of Pharmacy. She provides patient care in several clinics throughout the Charleston area and is a board-certified asthma educator. Her involvement with the harm reduction clinic located within the Canal Charleston Health Department includes teaching naloxone training to patients, caregivers, and members of the community, as well as assisting with harm reduction clinic services. I'm really grateful to Lindsay for making the trip out to D.C. to share her story with us again. She originally told the story in a show we produced in my family's hometown of Charleston, West Virginia last year. But unfortunately, the recording failed, so I'm so glad we got another chance to share it with y'all. Our next story today is from Jeannie Purchase. It was recorded in March 2019 at the Haymarket Theater in Blacksburg, Virginia. The show was presented in partnership with Virginia Tech. The theme that night was public-inspired science. I first met Ms. Pauline Ray Brown and Eugene Smith in September of 2017. I had first heard their story in my engineering ethics in the public class, and Dr. Edwards offered students an opportunity to visit Denmark, South Carolina on a sampling trip. I volunteered to go, mainly because I was nosy. I, the story was so bizarre that I wanted to see it for myself. Ms. Paula and Eugene are an African-American couple in their 70s, and they have been complaining about their bad water issues for the past 10 years. They have been collecting over 40 water samples, jars of dirty, smelly water from their taps, labeled with dates and times since 2009, each a sealed time capsule waiting for the day when someone would listen. They drive 20 miles round trip to Healing Springs to fill up dozens of water jugs to use for washing their hair, rinsing dishes, brushing their teeth, and cooking. They have collected pictures and high-priced water bills, newspaper articles, letters to state reps, lawyer cease and desist statements, health records, and even a consent order between Denmark and the state all in one binder, bulging with so much information in it, it's bursting at the seams. 
But the question that baffles me is, how do you have bad and expensive water for 10 years and nobody's doing anything about it? The people in the town are so resigned to their fate, they don't even fight it anymore. I had to see this for myself, but when we arrived, I wasn't quite prepared. Despite their high poverty rates, Denmark was not in ruins. Paul and Eugene had this nice, clean, ranch-style home overflowing with southern hospitality. They had this beautiful china cabinet across from the formal dining room table that no one actually eats at. They also had the formal sitting room that no one actually sits in with that couch that typically has plastic on it so you don't mess it up, but in this case, they had a sheet. They also had small black figurines of musicians and angels just placed carefully throughout the house. Their house, it, it felt like home, and they felt like grandparents I never met before. Miss Paula cooked us this huge dinner of fried fish, macaroni and cheese, collard greens, rolls, and cake. And when you finished eating, she made sure you got more food than you had space for. Dr. Edwards mentioned how good the greens were and asked her what they were seasoned with. And she was like, oh, just some bacon grease. But <laughs> I knew it had to be something like that. Um, it had to be more than herbs because there was nothing healthy about those greens. It had to be some turkey neck, some pig feet, or bacon. But Holly and Jean were just this loving couple, and their house was filled with joy and stories and love and abundance for all of us. But they just had bad and overpriced water and learned to live with that. I adopted Denmark for my class study after the trip, and I went through that binder that of all the records Paul and Eugene collected. I was looking for evidence and historical documents to give some context to this injustice they experienced. But when it came to writing up my findings, I began to freeze because I wasn't writing a summary of Denmark's water history. I was putting pieces together to create it. But who was I to create that history? Um, I'm just a 24-year-old engineering PhD student. Of course, I spent hours and months doing research on this, but still. 10 years ago, when, they, when all of this began, I was just 14 years old. A freshman ninth grader at Cedar Grove High School in Southeast Atlanta. When Paul and Eugene first started noticing brown and stinky water from their taps, who was I to write up their history? Um, as a kid, I didn't even grow up in Denmark. Did I have the right? I questioned whether or not I was even doing the right thing. It was an ethics class after all. But what bothers me is that 14-year-old me wouldn't have questioned it at all. I was a feisty little thing who would have helped these people no matter the cost. I, I wouldn't have known how to help, and nor would I have had the power to do anything about it, but 24-year-old me has been trained as an engineer for the past seven years, where engineers must be objective and impartial. We must present facts with hard evidence. We leave out opinions and minimize emotions because, you know, emotions make you biased. And if you're biased, you, you jeopardize your credibility. Essentially, I think that um, we're taught to minimize our humanity. But the real question is, was I too emotionally involved? 
Was, was this ethical? As you can see, I struggled. I, I struggled to be objective as possible. I, I wanted to try to give the bad guys in the saga the benefit of the doubt while still honoring these citizens' very harsh reality. But <laughs> this responsibility seemed so great, and I was so young, like so over my head. But I am a part of the Virginia Tech team that worked with Denmark residents to uncover the use of a pesticide halosan that was being used to treat their wells. It was used illegally as it's not approved for drinking water. And they've been using this pesticide for the past 10 years. The exact same time Paul and Eugene first started believing that their water was making them sick. But we got to help prove that after all these years, they weren't crazy. Last fall, we went to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and we were asked to present on our work that we've done in Denmark, Flint, and other communities. And we also accepted an award for community engagement that we've done in these places. And when they first told me we were going on the trip and we were going with President Sands and we were taking the Hokie Bird, I was really excited, okay? But I was a little confused, like, why are we taking the mascot? Um, like, I'm, like, I'm all here for, you know, this school spirit thing, but do we really need that big bird? costume um, but y'all the hokey bird is not just the university mascot okay it is the university's private jet it's a plane all right <laughs> so I was excited okay it's a it's a plane that's probably most frequently used to recruit football players but your girl was elated my <laughs> Probably a little too excited because my mom was like, calm down. Don't act like you've never been anywhere before. But you know, well, mom, I ain't never met President Sands before and I darn sure ain't been nowhere on no private jet. So I'm gonna have me a good old time, okay? Don't worry though, I'ma send you pictures. But our presentation was amazing and compelling. And the best part was that Paul and Eugene got to go and present with us. They got to really share in the entire experience. They spent a couple of days in Blacksburg at the Inn at VT. And we, they got to speak with the new ethics class. And we had this awesome potluck for them. They were catered to by everyone around them. President Sands personally went to go get Ms. Brown a chair when she got tired of standing and Dr. Edwards was running back and forth to get them anything they wanted from the mini bar on the plane except for alcohol of course they wanted to make sure I let y'all know that part um <laughs> Polly and Eugene were truly the guests of honor as they should be and on top of that after we got back that night I took them to their favorite restaurant, Red Lobster, after we got back. And I don't know what happened, but for some reason, the waiter thought it was their anniversary and they got free ice cream and cake at dinner. It was like the perfect ending to the most amazing day. And they were going home the next morning. And so I asked Pauline Jean, what was your favorite part of the trip, okay? And you know what they said? The shower. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> um, <laughs> the shower? 
uh, uh, I, I tried to hide the shock on my face as they continued to talk about this water. Um, it was um, in this moment of fun and fellowships and laughs that I realized that the best part of the trip was the shower. It was this warm, clean ability to wash the, and the peace that they had after three days of not having to second guess what was coming out of the tap. And that night, I cried myself to sleep because I can't fix their water. And then it dawned on me. They weren't asking me to be perfect, to craft their history primed and polished. They just wanted someone to listen and to walk with them on their journey, to share with them what I do know and provide clarity where I can. But I was so concerned about being so young and inexperienced and feeling underqualified, even though I am, as I take on something so much bigger than myself. But I just can't afford to do that anymore. To question myself, to freeze, to shrink back and wait for someone who is more fit to do this. Because Paul and Eugene, they already had to wait 10 years for a 14-year-old girl to grow up. That was Jeannie M. Purchase. Jeannie is a PhD student in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Virginia Tech. Her research focuses on examining the efficacy of point of use and point of entry filter when exposed to extreme corrosion conditions and investigating the barriers hindering the widespread adoption of these technologies in at-risk communities. Her interdisciplinary work is at the intersection of citizen science, water quality, remediation, and public health. Through her research, Jeannie collaborates with residents to pursue solutions to community-based problems. Jeannie loves to teach, mentor, and inspire students and work with communities like Denmark, South Carolina. She aspires to be a professor. Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Miriam Zaringhollum, Shane Hanlon, Christine Gentry, and Emma Yarbrough. The podcast is edited by senior podcast editor Zoe Saunders, with help from Jen Quinn and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Beer Baron Tavern and the Haymarket Square Theater for hosting these shows, and to everyone out there trying to save the world. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.